We're continuing our, our, our uh, series in the book of James. Today we'll be reading in the fourth chapter, 13 through the end of the chapter, which is 13 through 17. And this is the, the God-breathed, eternally true word of God. So let's listen very carefully to it. Beginning with verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We would pray, Lord, that you would clear the traffic and the busyness out of our minds for this next half hour. And enable us, Lord, to focus on you and your word and how it applies to our lives, Lord. We pray that you would illumine our minds to enable us to understand what you are conveying to us through the pen of James in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Isaiah 54.10 is my favorite verse in the Bible. And people say it's dangerous uh, to have a favorite verse. Well, I guess I'm, I'm living on the wild side because <laughs> it's my, my favorite verse. And it says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, though my steadfast love will not be shaken from you, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I just love that verse. Whether, whatever happens to the mountains, what I you know, thinking this week, the hurricane, no matter what happens, if somebody stormed in the back right now and did terrible things, no matter what, his steadfast love will not be removed. That's not the sermon. I'm sorry, I got off on that. My wife and oldest daughter know that that's my favorite scripture. So they, they, they painted this beautiful scene on a, a fairly large canvas with, with those words from Isaiah 54.10. And because of the, the beauty of their art and the magnificence of the, the promise that's on there, I wanted, to, I wanted to put that somewhere where I would see it all the time. And so it's in our living room uh, right next to our fireplace, right there, first thing you see. My question to you, and I want you to nod yes if you agree with this, did, did I have the, the right to put that where, where I put it? If you think I, I, it was okay for me to put it there, just do like this. Okay, nobody even is awake. So <laughs> it's not a trick question. Do you think it was okay that I did that? Nod. Yeah. So if you think that's not okay, nod this way. Maybe that's what I need to find. Praise God, nobody nodded. I'll come back to you on what that has to do. You probably already know. 
James' instruction about not boasting what we'll do tomorrow, but rather to say, we should ask, if it's your will, Lord, we'll, do, we'll live or we'll do this or that, is based on one of three foundational truths that we'll be focusing on this morning. And the first one is that God, our creator, owns everything and everybody. God owns everything and everybody. Everybody's at his disposal. Everything is at his disposal to use however he wants to for his glory. I own that painting, but God owns that painting and everything. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? He owns the earth and everything in it and everybody in it. He really does own it. He owns us. Ooh, that stings the ears of so many, particularly Americans. But people worldwide don't want to hear that. He really did create you. The Bible says he knit you together in your mother's womb. That he forms you. When King David wrote the song we know as Psalm 139... It's crystal clear that he knows he belongs to the Lord. He knows he is owned by the Lord. Listen to these words, Psalm 139, 13 through 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes this this vivid word picture of the care God took in creating him personally. God formed him, the scripture says, knit him together in a fearful and wonderful way. You know, God just said, let there be light. And there was light. And that's way more than any of us can even comprehend. But mankind is his crowning achievement. He took special care when making God in his own image, forming and knitting. And that last line, intricately weaving us together, each person. That gives each human life immense value. David continues in verse 16. Your eyes, that is God's eyes, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. David's saying that God had planned out every one of these days before David was ever born. How can we even consider that? Because it's so great. He, and he delights so much in mankind, his creation, that he thinks about us a lot. Because he loves his children, he loves his people with an immeasurable, unspeakable love. He thinks about us. He created us. He bought us. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. All of this serves as a context as to why James is writing this loving rebuke uh, to his flock. It bears repeating that James was the leader of the Christians, the Christian church in Jerusalem, and there was such intense persecution on the new Christians there in Jerusalem that they, got, they had to flee the city. They had to uproot their family and run for their lives. And James is writing this to those scattered believers to encourage them and instruct them, and in the case of our passage today, to lovingly rebuke them when it's necessary. So back to our scripture, James 4, 13 and 14. James is aware that some of these scattered Christians are boasting about making life plans without giving a thought to asking God if it's his will or not. They were operating under the, the, the naturally, the natural globally common belief that we have the the right to self-determination. That we have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, however we want to do it, because we want to do it. As long as it doesn't break the law, and sometimes even including the breaking the law, sometimes Christians... Even me, even I act as though whatever decision I make is the right decision just because it's what I want. Without going to the Lord and saying, this seems like something you might not be interested in, but what would you think, Lord, about me doing so-and-so? Give me wisdom. Reveal to me as I read the scripture or through a friend what I should do. We've all been guilty of making these decisions about relationships. We don't pray about relationships, about our jobs, about education, our physical bodies, our very lives. We make decisions without seeking God's will. The Jewish Christians to whom James was writing were boasting about their plans to be successful. Verse 13 reveals that they were deciding when and where they would move, how long they would stay, and what they would do. They were deciding this. They were charting out their plans without giving a thought to the Lord. The desired result of all their presumptuous strategies was what? It says in the scripture, right at the end of verse 13, to make a profit. Plans aren't inherently bad any more than money or education or jobs aren't inherently bad either. And James isn't suggesting that they should make no plans, that they should just kick back and click the pause button on their brain and fold their arm and just sit and wait for blessings to come. Back in the ancient Near East, right up till today in the United States, we got to put bread on the table, right? We got to make plans. We got to do something. James isn't isn't arguing that point. He's just saying we should go to the Lord 
and ask him. It's their presumptuous confidence that he's speaking to. He's saying, come now, you who say, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this and this and this. I always just burn when Dina says, well, let's pray about it, Tim. I'm like, thank you, Dina. Okay, let's pray about it. We should consult our master. And you know what? That's really the question. Who is your master? That's the most important question to ask regarding any decision you're making in life. Is God really your master deep in your core? Or are you your master? That's really what it boils down to. Your position on this question affects virtually everything in your life. There are millions of people who sincerely believe that the answer to the abortion issue is, how many times have you heard this? Women have a right to do with their own bodies what they want. This is a a, a false and damning and ignorant statement and I know those are harsh preachy words but they're true words first they wouldn't have a body or the ability to procreate if it weren't for God gifting them with the body so their body is not their own possession to abuse and destroy any old way that seems fun or convenient At the time, remember, we read 1 Corinthians 6 a minute ago. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So they begin with a false premise to begin with that their body is their own. So they can do with it what they want. And second, there's many things, but the only two I'm going to mention. I I was no valedictorian uh, of my class, uh, but it doesn't take a genius to know that it's, it's... it shows a measure of ignorance and even it's illogical to think that a little baby who has 10 fingers and 10 toes and a heartbeat is a part of the woman's body, like her ear or her little toe. To be sure, their bodies are most certainly not their own nor is the little body of the living little human being that they're murdering. One commentator writes this, Christians must avoid the worldliness that pervades all societies, causing its victims to neglect God and arrange their lives as though he does not exist and as if they alone are masters of their destiny. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. So first, our creator God owns everything and everybody. Second, we're all dependent on God. All of us at some time or another have tried to live independently of God. Some of us will do that this afternoon. 
Some of us have already done that this morning, but it'll never work. It'll never work, ultimately, because we're weak, fragile, helpless without him. We need to be reminded constantly that God is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being and wisdom and power and holiness, justice and goodness and truth. And we humans are his creatures. We're the work of his hands. He created us. That's why he has the right of ownership. We are the the sheep of his pasture. And don't get me started on how helpless and fragile and, and just dumb sheep are. The greatest danger about presumptuously assuming that we know how the next year or the next hour might turn out isn't because it's primarily boasting. That's not the greatest danger. The greatest danger isn't that, it's, that we're probably wrong about how it's going to turn out because we probably are. The greatest danger about presumptuously boasting arrogantly with what we're going to do tomorrow and the next day and how it's going to turn out is because it's an affront to our almighty God and to his sovereignty. It's an affront to the honor and glory and trust that is due him. And if we're willing to admit it, which is hard to do, It's really an attempt for us to be master, for us to be God of our lives. Listen, whether whether we mean to or not, when we exclude God from our life situations and decisions, we're trying to rob him of his glory. And he takes that very seriously. That's what Satan did, right? Things didn't work out very well for him. That's what Adam and Eve did. God had spelled out to them the perfect plan for them to be provided for and cared for and have peace and have prosperity and live in the Garden of Eden, which we don't know if it's as big as Virginia Beach or as big as this campus. We don't know. But we know it was full of lush vegetation and food and nothing, mosquitoes. (laughs) It was amazing. But you know what? They disregarded him and his plan and he did things their own way. And every time I think, how stupid can they be? They had it all. The Lord goes, hey, Tim, how stupid are you? You're thousands of years beyond that, 66 books of the Bible beyond that, and you still do that. You still come up with your own way. His plan for their success isn't what they wanted. If you've attended this church for any length of time, you've probably heard me when praying say, Thank you, God, for every breath we draw, we know is a gift of your sustaining grace. 
I don't highlight that about myself because I'm so holy, but precisely because I'm so unholy. Because I know how often I rely on myself. How often I depend on my own savvy. I pray that to remind myself that I'm a few heartbeats away from going to be with him. This morning at this moment, there's mothers and dads and brothers and sisters who are experiencing searing pain from those they lost in the storm just recently, just in the last few days. Those in West Texas who lost loved ones to gunfire. Life is fragile, much more so than many of us like to think. And you and I are weak and helpless much more than many of us like to think. Verse 14 says, what is your life? It's a rhetorical question that he's asking, aimed at teaching them and us that we are not independent. We are dependent. We are dependent on him for every beat of our hearts. We couldn't tie our shoes if it wasn't for him. And remember, he's the one that formed us, knitted us together, and had countless thoughts about us. Why in the world would we want to depend on ourselves? Look at that last verse, the last part of verse 14 that I've bolded for you there. What do you think James was getting at? He was drawing attention to the vast difference between you and me and humankind and our indestructible, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And how frail we are. Man is a mist compared to God. If a drop of water represents our strength, all the water in all the oceans in a thousand worlds doesn't get at God's strength. He is immeasurably powerful and knowledgeable and loving. The Bible says man is crushed more readily than a moth. Man's strength and longevity is compared to the foam after a ship goes by, the foam and how quickly it's gone. We're compared to grasshoppers, a shriveled leaf. I've already mentioned sheep. We desperately need God to plan our paths, God to lead us to what's next, to bump our boats back on course, to convict us and discipline us as a loving father does his child. Look at James 4, 15 through 17. Instead of saying I'm doing this and that, when and where I think it's 
the best place to do it, we ought to say, verse 15, if the, Lord's, if the Lord wills, we will live. We don't even know if we're going to live tomorrow. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We're not to see this as an impossible mandate, but the norm of our everyday lives to ask God if he wills, we will do this or that. I've heard many of you bear verbal testimony that you personally trust in the Lord for every detail of your lives. It's been a tremendous encouragement um, to, to my wife and family to hear that over and over and over from so many of you. The take-home point is this. You and I must recognize and acknowledge how weak and fragile and sinful we are and how powerless we are to do anything about it. We're on much safer ground with God in control of our lives than with us in control. Infinitely safer. Listen to the mighty warrior David's description of our great God. This is also in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. What does that mean? That means he, he, he's touching him. He's loving him. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. First, our God owns everything and owns us. Second, we're all dependent on God. And third, God is able to lead us and hold us. In verse 10, David is singing to God something which many believers are probably reading to the hurricane victims in the Bahamas. Even if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will what? Lead. Even there, your hand will lead. James's whole point was that they weren't depending on God to lead them. And what have I told you? What, what does God's arm, God's hand in the ancient Near East, in the Hebrew language, what, does that, what is that synonymous with? I know a lot of you know this, you just don't want to say it, it's power. Anytime you see in the Old Testament particularly God's hand, God's, God's arm, 
is God's strength. This is the great news of the gospel. I said it before, that we're weak and we're fragile and we're sinful and we're helpless to do anything about that station in life. But God's powerful, loving hand leads us and holds us. Last scripture, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. David writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Wow. David got it, didn't he? he? David understood his helplessness and God's omnipotence. Search me, try me, know me, see me, lead me. David had experienced what happened when he led himself. He's crying out to God saying, lead me, Lord. Think how beautiful it is. Do you approach God that fearlessly? It just shows it's a scary thing to say, search me, God. Know me. Know my thoughts. Look at me. See if there's any sinful way in me and lead me. This morning I thought about that little song that I probably won't be able to remember now. (laughs) Um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones... Are you a little one or a big one? Are you strong and powerful and intelligent and savvy? And then what does it say? Little ones to him, what? Belong. Little ones to him belong. Praise God that he's opened our our ears and our hearts to know that we're little and in need of him. Praise God that he's big enough to save us and to hold us. Let's pray. Lord, we're astounded by you and your word. Our mouths drop open when we think that you have thoughts about us, how vast are the sum of your thoughts about little us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us when we mess up, loving us when we don't. Help us, Lord, to trust in you for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.